This is David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 137 of A History of England. Following the Liberal defeats at the election of 1874, Gladstone, Keane, Ornan, interval between Parliament and the grave, had stepped back from active politics. Leadership of the party had gone to Lord Hartington. He sat in the Commons and was called Lord only as a courtesy until he inherited one of the grandest of titles from his father, the Duke of Devonshire. Alongside Hartington, Lord Granville led the party in the Lords. Then, however, disgusted by the Bulgarian atrocities, Gladstone had roared back out of retirement to denounce Turkey and the persecution of its Christian subjects in the Balkans. Once started on this course, he decided that he would, after all, continue his career in politics. You'll remember, however, that he'd had patchy luck in his parliamentary seats. Defeated for re-election after 15 years in Oxford, he'd had the good fortune to have also been nominated in South Lancashire, which elected him. Later, it too dumped him, but again he had a backup, a seat in Greenwich, which he won and represented for 12 years. Twice then, he'd had to accept second-choice seats. Now, as the 1874 Parliament was drawing to its end, he looked for a seat that suited him better. Midlothian in Scotland, with Edinburgh at its heart, had just 3,620 electors. That made it practically possible to predict the outcome by analysing individual voters' behaviour. Lord Rosebery, the local magnate, was prepared to fund Gladstone's campaign there and manage it for him. Two lawyers working for him calculated that if Gladstone stood, he would win by 200. Again, though, another seat wanted him. That was Leeds, but it had 50,000 electors, making it far less easy to control. Besides, Leeds was an industrial city in Yorkshire. Though Scotland wasn't an independent nation, Edinburgh had much of the prestige of a capital city. Gladstone decided that Midlothian was indeed his main chance. He didn't, however, say no to Leeds, so he once more had a backup to his first preference, just in case. Now, Disraeli, the Prime Minister, buoyed by two successful by-election results, decided in March 1880 that the moment had come for a new general election. This became the culmination of a celebrated episode in Gladstone's career, the Midlothian Campaign. He didn't really need to campaign to win Midlothian, which was practically in the bag. He was more concerned with two other objectives of his re-emergence from retirement, to win a substantial majority for the Liberal Party nationally and to re-establish his authority over it. We've seen that he was a great performer in rallies, despite the length of his speeches and his tortured syntax. At public meetings, both in Midlothian and around the country, he addressed not just the crowd, but the readers of the papers which carried reports of the events. That gave his campaign its national reach. Gladstone set about systematically bombarding the government. Specifically, he attacked it for engaging in costly and indefensible foreign adventures, which he, and many others, associated with the general approach labelled Beaconsfieldism, since Disraeli had been made Earl of Beaconsfield in 1876. That wasn't entirely fair since the Second Anglo-Afghan War and the Zulu War in South Africa had been launched by overzealous subordinates. 
Still, those disasters happened on Disraeli's watch, and, as we saw, his ministers were too slow and too hesitant to stop them. Indeed, had the adventures succeeded, the government would surely have claimed credit for them. Mavericks who exceed orders attract praise if successful, but only repudiation if they fail. Gladstone's biographer Roy Jenkins points out that he denounced the death of 10,000 Zulus for no other offence than their attempt to defend against your artillery with their naked bodies, their hearths and homes, their wives and families. Likewise, he proclaimed that the sanctity of life in the hill villages of Afghanistan among the winter snows is as inviolable in the eyes of Almighty God as can be your own. So much for events abroad. On the domestic front, Gladstone had come a long way leftward from his conservative days. Jenkins quotes a stirring speech against an elite, most of whom were blind to the needs of the population as a whole. We have great forces arrayed against us. We cannot reckon on the wealth of the country, nor upon the rank of the country, nor upon the influence which rank and wealth normally bring. In the main, these powers are against us. Above all these, and behind all these, there is something greater than these. There is the nation itself. This great trial is now proceeding before the nation. The nation is a power hard to rouse, but, when roused, harder still and more hopeless to resist. That's Gladstone lining up with the masses against the classes, to use an expression of the times. But, as Jenkins points out, that didn't make him an egalitarian. Gladstone also proclaimed, I am a firm believer in the aristocratic principle, the rule of the best. I am an out-and-out inequalitarian. The best people should exercise power, and wealth goes to the best people. What he wanted to see was the Liberal Party serving the whole nation by leading the distinguished and enlightened minority of the classes, made up of able, energetic, patriotic and liberal-minded men whose feelings are with those of the people and who decorate and dignify their rank by their strong sympathy with the entire community. Well, he was going to get his chance. He won his constituency of Midlothian. He won in Leeds too, though there he just handed the seat on to his son, who took it unopposed in a by-election a few weeks later. We said before that this was a time of the swing of the pendulum, with the advantage switching from one party to the other from election to election. The Conservatives defeated the Liberals in 1874, with a majority similar to the one the other way in 1868. Now, in 1880, the pendulum swung back again, cheating Disraeli of his hopes and giving the Liberals a comparable majority over the Conservatives. The swing had been reinforced by the Midlothian campaign, as Gladstone spoke to huge crowds and his words reached many more through the press. The campaign made him a dominant figure in the politics of the day. Indeed, in Midlothian itself, he won his seat by 211 votes, only 11 more than predicted at the outset. Clearly, the impact of the campaign at constituency level was minimal. It was nationally that Gladstone had most effect. So, what to do about him? It was the Liberal Party that had won, and the party leader was Hartington. Victoria even went so far as to call on him to form a government, such was a dislike of Gladstone. That, though, was to ignore how the election had made him such an essential figure in the politics of his day. Both Hartington and Granville knew that a Liberal government would be unviable without Gladstone. They sounded him out. 
he was clear that he wouldn't serve under either of them. The only job he'd consider in government was the top one. The position was so stark that even the Queen eventually had to give in. Imagine her with gritted teeth inviting Gladstone to form a government again. Those were the unpropitious conditions in which he'd launched his second administration. Now let's look across the Irish Sea. There, a man I mentioned briefly at the end of last week's episode was achieving prominence. Though a Protestant, Charles Stuart Parnell was emerging as the key figure in Ireland's politics. Initially, he focused his energy on home rule, on getting Ireland its parliament back. Like most of the Irish members in the Westminster Parliament that had absorbed theirs, he felt it devoted far too little attention to his country's concerns. He therefore engaged in a campaign of obstructionism to undermine the government's attempt to get its legislation passed. His view was that if Britain denied the Irish their parliament, the Irish MPs had every right to block the government conducting its business, whether Irish or British or indeed imperial, in its own. A striking instance is what happened with the South Africa Bill of 1877. Here are Parnell's words from the Record of Parliamentary Proceedings, Hansard, for the 25th of July. As it was with Ireland, so it was with the South African colonies. Therefore, as an Irishman coming from a country which had experienced to the fullest extent the results of English interference in its affairs and the consequences of English cruelty and tyranny, he felt a special satisfaction in preventing and thwarting the intentions of the government in respect of this bill. Note the reference to the English. That might look like the conflation of England and Britain in which men such as Disraeli frequently engaged. But in Parnell's case, I can't help wondering whether he deliberately identified England within Britain as the main architect of Ireland's woes. By dint of filibustering, proposing procedural motions or amendments to the bill and making wearily long speeches, Parnell and six other obstructive members kept the House debating for 45 hours to pass the bill, including a historic single continuous sitting from 5.15 in the evening of Tuesday the 31st of July until 2.10 in the afternoon of Wednesday the 1st of August, a total of 21 hours. His behaviour in Parliament put Parnell out on the left of the Home Rule movement in stark opposition to its more conservative leader, Isaac Butt. He saw it as a pressure group for incremental progress through conciliation of the British parliamentary parties. To strengthen his position, Parnell went looking for support even further to the left, amongst the members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, increasingly known on both sides of the Atlantic by its American name of Fenians. Though the organisation was committed to direct action, which its targets might rather call terrorism, there were Fenians who could be drawn towards non-violent politics. Men like Michael David, who decided to work with Parnell, even though he'd previously served seven years in jail for arms dealing. Another Fenian who worked with Parnell, John Devoy, justified his actions by referring to a new departure that would take the shape of a combination between the advocates of physical force and those who believe in constitutional agitation such as will leave the former free to prepare for active work while, in the meantime, giving a reasonable support to a dignified and manly demand for self-government on the part of the constitutionalists. 
Many other Fenian leaders rejected this stance. Some would even accuse Parnell of stealing some of their members, and Parnell himself never publicly endorsed collaboration with the Fenians, though he worked highly effectively with men like David and Devoy. Then 1879 delivered a bombshell in the form of terrible rain devastating the harvest and threatening parts of Ireland with famine again. Parnell hadn't particularly concerned himself with the issue of land reform, but now it forced itself on anyone involved in Irish politics. As the resentment amongst Irish tenant farmers grew against the men who owned the land, often charged excessive rents and might evict tenants for non-payment, he placed himself increasingly at their head, even though he was a landowner himself, if a good one, as his own tenants testified. The question was who owned the land, and the movement that emerged as the Land League under his presidency was clear. The land should belong to those who occupied it and cultivated it. Land reform and constitutional change were perfectly compatible for him. He declared, If we had the farmers, the owners of the soil tomorrow, we would not be long without getting an Irish parliament. However, though the issues were linked, he would always give priority to the political question of restoring the Irish Parliament and winning Home Rule. Next, Parnell, like Gladstone, had to deal with the general election Disraeli called in 1880. He campaigned to get Home Rule MPs elected and, above all, MPs that shared his commitment to Home Rule, land reform and disruptive tactics in Parliament. The election returned 63 Home Rule MPs, two sat as Liberals. Of the 61 remaining, 23, a minority, if a large one, backed Parnell's stance. Parnell had always criticised some Home Rule MPs for not taking parliamentary work seriously and even failing to turn up often enough. That would now play into his hand, however, when several of the MPs unenthusiastic about his position failed to attend a meeting in Dublin called to elect a new leader, Isaac Butt having conveniently died the year before. The result? Parnell's minority group turned into a majority at the meeting. Already president of the Land League, Parnell also took over as leader of the Home Rule Group in the House of Commons. Gladstone had the leadership of the government. Parnell led the Irish opposition. The scene was set for battle to be joined. As we'll discover next week. Thanks for listening.